when somebody I know in the industry has uh, loses a job or their business is struggling, like those times when things are hard for those people, that's the time one that they need the most help, and two they remember the most. Because I have so many different relationships now, it's usually pretty easy for me to, to to reach out and help people in some way or another. And that always ends up with new friendships, new relationships, and new opportunities. Because every person you meet is really a doorway to like this whole sea of opportunities that you wouldn't access otherwise. Welcome to the Strategic Momentum Podcast, the show where we share tips, stories, and advice from progressive leaders on what it takes to break through that business inertia and propel you and your business forward. I'm your host, Connie Steele. Are we really there for each other? I recently published an article on Ariana Huffington's Thrive Global about altruism, kindness, and business. This topic came about because I noticed several of my podcast guests mention kindness and their advice for breaking through the business inertia. In their own ways, they had stressed the importance of doing good and paying it forward, not just as an organization as we commonly talk about these days, but as an individual. Because when you look around, the reality is that altruism in business really isn't as common as we'd like to think. So I'm revisiting these interviews today to highlight the valuable points these guests have made and explore this topic further. What we'll find is that being kind and helpful is simply good business sense. But what's inhibiting people from really putting others first? No matter how many purpose-driven companies come out with plans to improve the world, the business of business will always be cutthroat. To survive, you have to be strategic in who you work with and where you go. And that can result in behavior that's completely counter to the notion of assisting and supporting others to create a mutual benefit. Let's take networking, for example. My guest from episode 30, John Newton, co-creator of the Financial Marketing Summit, points out that networking is one of the most self-centered activities for business people today, unfortunately, to everyone's detriment. The, the challenges that I see for most people is that they don't dig the well before they're thirsty. They don't focus at all on relationships. They're very, like, people approach networking from a very transactional basis. Like, when they meet, and, it's, and they wait till, till it's urgent, right? Like, I need this relationship or deal or opportunity right now. And so right now I'm going to start thinking about who can I go out there and meet, who can I go out there and find to fill this, but it really doesn't work that way. Like, you know, that's why you have all these slimy kind of people or, or interactions at networking events. Like people show up, they're super me focused and they are just like, I have to get this deal done. I have to find this deal. And so every conversation they have, they just say, Hey, how are you? And they start pitching you. Um, and nobody likes that and it comes off poorly. And so, you know, relationships are, it's, it, it takes time to develop. And so you can't just show up out of the blue with a need and, you know, demand that people kind of fulfill it for you. Well, what are other common expectations that you think people have when they come to events, whether it's your event or others that are probably not the right expectations? Well, I think it, it, it so it is that, that that's, it's definitely that me focus, right? Like, you get so much, there's so much pressure on you when you, when you go to a networking event, because you're like, I'm, I'm paying, especially if you're paying for the event, I paid to travel to come here. I have three things that I need to have happen from this. And I have 48 hours to get it done. Right. So it's like your, the clock starts in your head when, you, when they show up and it's ticking. And every second that goes by that they haven't found the relationship that they feel that they need, that it just gets more and more pressure on them. And the amount of networking 
that is just wasted because it's basically two people standing in front of each other, pitching each other without having a conversation is just enormous, right? People just waste so much time because they, um, they're both doing it. And then they kind of stand there awkwardly and then they move on. Oh, well, maybe I'll find someone for you. And then they walk away and no, and not, neither of them feel good about the interaction. And so like, that's why, I mean, that's why like even people who are not like outside of the, outside of a networking event or a business environment are not me focused, but they get into that environment and all of a sudden they are because they have that clock ticking in the back of their head. And so like the, the biggest thing that, that people could do is like back off of that. You know, you get so myopic in like, I have this deal that has to happen. I have in my head, the idea of what kind of a person is going to fit that deal. And I don't really understand anybody else's business or ambitions or any in the room. I just know what I need and what I want. And so I'm going to go try and hunt for that thing. And because of that, like you just miss everything that's happening around you. They miss all the opportunities. They miss all the things that they could do or with somebody uh, because again, there's just so me focused rather than turning it around and saying like, well, who are you? What do you want? What are you looking for? Trying to understand the person on the other side and the business on the other side. So what creates the self-interested mindset in the first place? John identifies general disinterest, especially when networking with people who you don't immediately identify with as someone who can help you or your business. And we could see people adopting a similar mindset when interacting with others who are within their own organization too. Then why are we accepting selfishness instead of confronting it? As those of us in business see constantly, competition and pressure breed fear and insecurity. When a corporate culture isn't we-centric and the behaviors and actions of those around you are about protecting oneself, it's easy to understand why people become inwardly focused. This lookout for oneself mentality can impact business leaders of all ages and ranks, and the emotions stemming from this mindset trigger gut responses and actions, like bullying, over-criticizing, and micromanaging. And on top of that, there's the misconception that empowering others takes power away from the individual. Beth Friedman, Managing Director of Gyro UK, and my guest on episode 19, considers how employees often feel less valued when others receive attention. Someone said to me once, you know, Beth, the biggest struggle anyone who is, is, a, is a good doer, who's a high achiever, has is when they try to make that shift to managing because all of a sudden it's not about what you can do it's about what you can get others to do it's about how you can teach them so it's like my first boss who didn't edit my piece but actually gave me the guidance to get what she wanted from me in the end but it's that every day and I see that in the people that I work with all the time that it's such a struggle because the other side of it is you're used to the validation and recognition that being the all-star you know I really have learned to be careful about that overpraising of, oh, she's our young superstar, because it really sets you up for failure when you get to a point where that praise has to be directed to someone else and you're struggling to feel valid and, and, and realize that your success is as much about how this person who reports into you is performing. And, you know, so it was all sorts of those things that I, you know, learned along the way and tried to apply where I could. Yeah, there's another piece of advice that I was given once, which is about just understanding the value of everybody that works for you. And I think 
the people who taught me knew this and obviously knew it intrinsically. And I'm just grateful for the one who put it into words for me, which is no matter how good you are, no client just pays for you. And you need that. You have to make them feel the value of every person they're paying for, or eventually they will leave. And it's, it's humbling and it's awesome because all it really does is say, remember, you're the coach, not necessarily the star player. Sometimes you're on the field, but lots of times you're about putting the right team on the field. And, you know, and, and this job that I'm now at has really been the culmination of getting the opportunity to come into a business where we can not only focus um, outward about building the business, but where we have the resource to allow me to focus looking down and across the business to really build the people where so much of my remit is focused on the people here versus just simply going out and selling and running the client business and finding more revenue. And that for me was, that was a bit of the holy grail. As Beth learned, putting your team first and making people feel valued is crucial to business success. It's about letting go of that insecurity because in the end, kindness and altruism lead to greater upward mobility and gratification than selfishness does. My guest from episode 25, John Keeling, SVP of Business Development at The Motley Fool, understands this. He's seen what it's like when businesses are run by mercenaries who are just using employees as a means to an end versus servant leaders who take the position that winning for we is the same as winning for me. Early on in my career, you know, I had a lot of colleagues, even mentors who were maybe more mercenary (laughs) and, (laughs) you know, they, 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 they knew what winning looked like to them and they marshaled all of their energy and focus and skills and talent on achieving that goal. And they, they could be quite successful, but I don't know that that success then multiplied within the organization. If anything, they were feared. They created a lot of friction in the organization, you know, burned out the culture. Uh, and so over time, I, I recognized that. And I started to see alternative approaches the approach of someone like Kip Timnell. And I saw how that kind of servant leadership, as they say, you know, really created a a different dynamic. They don't necessarily look at people's jobs and titles and so forth. Just seek out that fresh new perspective to help you solve a problem. In that value exchange, have a clear understanding of the assets and the investment that both sides are are attempting to make and their goals for those investments and support each other. And Kip has this uh, wonderful expression. He, he'll say, you know, once he decides to do business with someone and partner with them, he'll say, let's see if you can do more for each other. It's really this idea of, again, not what's in it for me, but who can do more for the other person? How can we uh, invest in each other so that we're both more successful than we would be uh, independently? And it's just broadening your mindset, not just to narrowly, you know, the opportunity for you, but the opportunity for your partner. And the more we can make each other successful, the more, you know, it's going to come back uh, and, and, and drive success for, for ourselves as well. John isn't alone in this way of thinking. Dan Yu, the founder of the talent agency Fastbook Advisors, and our guest on episode 23, also emphasizes that kindness and altruism aren't just niceties that make business more pleasant. They're tools you can and should employ to run your business and your career more strategically. 
one of the things that I like to talk about when I speak to uh, to talent is the 50% rule. So half your day in an ideal world is doing your job. And the other half is actually managing your career. I can speak to my own career and how I learned this myself. When I was early in my career, I was go, go, go. And I was all about the client. I was handling some uh, some really big mutual fund clients as a trader and a salesperson. I was all about the client. And I didn't manage my career at all. I was I was really good at my job, but I was not very good at managing my career. And when I say that half of your day is doing your job and half of day is managing your career, the managing your career part of your day really can be networking. It can be uh, going to conferences, but it really is about creating your presence and, and demonstrating your responsibilities. And it could be sending the right email. It could be sending that uh, that victory lap email and congratulating everybody else on your team and not taking any credit for, your, for yourself. And being that magnanimous and generous person, not counting points, but really helping them appreciate you. Because in your career, you're going to have a lot of different contacts, but clients, uh, the people that work for you, your peers, your, your managers, your vendors and competitors, really, you, you know, that having that uh, dynamic and that network work for you over the long term, a lot of it is really managing your presence and uh, calling people back in a timely fashion. The fundamentals of business, really, it's, it's so important to, to be generous and to be kind uh, especially in networking and helping people and giving back to your community, uh, which then is really that half of your day of managing your career. And why do you think most people just don't think about that? Uh, people are busy. You've, all, you, you've only got so much bandwidth in, in the course of a day. You've got to get to this meeting. You've got to run to that meeting. Oh, I've got a lunch with, uh, with this colleague of mine that I have to... I have to uh, Ask them a few questions about project. I got to make that train. I got to get home. I got to get milk on the way home. Uh, I've got to get to my kid's soccer game. All of those things get in the way of managing your career. So it's making sure that you're mindful of seeing it from a bigger picture perspective. As you said, have a plan. It's almost like strategic planning for your own career and having that be the forefront, never losing sight of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's almost that like insurance or, or, or preventative strategy because everybody needs a disaster recovery plan. Everybody does. <laughs> it's definitely not something I think people would ever think of a disaster recovery plan. <laughs> well, it's, it's running your career like a business, right? And if, if you're looking at your business, well, you know, what, what's, the, what's the revenue Right? So that's your salary and your bonus. And what's your, what's your revenue continuity plan? Look at it that way. One thing that I like, to, I like to think about with the scale of importance in your life, in your personal life, what, what, what's, the, what's the most important? Well, it's your immediate family. It's you know, your spouse, your children, your parents. And then after that, it's your siblings, maybe, or your or your best friend, and all, all the way down to maybe that seventh cousin you've never spoken to. In your professional life, it's 
treating the people around you in that generous way. So um, think of, think of uh, everybody within your circle, clients, the people that you manage, potentially your peers, your managers, your, your boss's boss, but also your vendors and competitors. Uh, you never know who can be a mentor to you, who can who can potentially uh, make that make that connection? I, I I tell people all the time: take care of your employees. They may one day hire you. Be really kind to uh, to 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 the people that work for you because they ultimately they make you look good in front of clients. Like Dan said, we are busy people. But not only is making the time to be kind important for our careers, it's really not that difficult or time-consuming. Dr. Phil Zimbardo, renowned Stanford psychologist from episode 18, reminds us that even the smallest things can make others feel special. And in making the choice to do so, we are being an active upstander instead of a bystander. You're choosing to be the one who stands up and takes action, which is a kind of behavior that makes an everyday hero. What can I do? Phil Zimbardo to make this person feel special. Now, when I so you go to a party, instead of saying, I hope I'm going to have fun, you say, Who at this party can I make feel special? Well, when I as soon as I go in, I look around, is there anybody sitting alone or standing alone, not not mingling? And I know from previous research I've done, they're probably shy, uh, they're, or they're probably awkward, they probably they want to engage, but they or they don't know how. So that's the person you go over to and say, "Hi, I'm Phil Zimbardo. Uh, who are you? What's your name? Uh, who do you know here?" And and then I, then ultimately you remember their name, and then you give a compliment. And so we teach these things. And you know the compliment could always start with something external. Gee, I really love that sweater you're wearing. Uh, what what kind of material is it? And then you, you say to me, uh, I don't know. It looks it's like wool or. Uh, and, and then I say, oh, so, you know, so if it's a man to a woman, you want to make sure you, she doesn't think you're hitting on her. You say, oh, I, I, where did you get it? I'd like to get one for my girlfriend or for my wife or something. Uh, and then or then you go from external things like, you know, pretty earrings or sweater or a tie for a guy, you know, to internal things. I really like what you said about such and such. You know, it's, it made me think profound, you know. So but people don't give compliments because it feels awkward because people don't do it. In some cultures, it's very, very rare. But even in America, it's relatively rare. But I'm saying once you do it as, as a regular basis, it becomes what I call a social habit. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's what it means to be sociocentric. It also means, for example, uh, although I love San I'm a New Yorker, but I've been living in San Francisco for 45 years. And I love San Francisco. And the one sad thing is we have an enormous population of homeless people. Uh, and many of these homeless people are on the street begging. Well, the first thing to do is change the definition. These are not homeless people. These are people without a home. And they're people without a home because they lost their job, because uh, they were in the military and they develop PTSD and they can't hold a job for any number where they can't afford the rent uh, in San Francisco. <clears throat> and they're here because it, the weather is better than in the Midwest or the East Coast, and so I decide every every day. I might, you know, if I'm I'm, I'm going to give a dollar or fifty cents, and what I do is as I'm passing by, I'll stop. Usually, I give money to give it an old person, 
give money to an older person or a woman begging. And I'll first say, hi, I'm Phil Zimbardo. What's your name? And I put my hand out to shake the hand. And I shake the hand. I say, you know, here's a dollar. I wish it could be more. You know, uh, do you live? And then some simple thing. Do you live here? You know, how long have you been down on your luck? In many cases, people would begin to tear up because nobody has treated them like a person. And, and, and then I always say, I wish it could be more. And they say, no, no, thank you, thank you. You know, uh, so, here, so I'm saying the lessons are super simple. It's how do you make somebody feel respected and always imagine it was you. And imagine it was you that if you didn't beg, you would, if you didn't get some money, you wouldn't even have food. But you know, to be a beggar in any society is to be shamed. And so instead of people throwing a quarter in your hat or your cup or something, some, somebody is going to ask you who you are and shake your hand. And it's it literally, for many of them, it's transformative. It, it renews their sense of self, self-pride, self-worth. Practicing the altruistic social habits that Dr. Zimbardo talks about can also be strategically beneficial to our careers, as Dan Yu suggested. And as you will hear from John Knudsen, helping others creates a doorway to opportunities that you might not have ever imagined. If you really take responsibility for other people's success, like the things that come out of that are so huge. Like one of the, the one of the things that I always kind of look out for is when somebody I know in the industry has uh, loses a job or their business is struggling. Like those times when things are hard for those people, that's the time one that they need the most help and two they remember the most right because i have so many different relationships now it's usually pretty easy for me to 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 reach out and help people in some way or another and that always ends up with new friendships new relationships and new opportunities because every person you meet like every person you meet is really a doorway to like this whole sea of opportunities that you wouldn't access otherwise kind also has a palpable psychological benefit, not just in these more dire circumstances, but in every circumstance. Dr. Richard Schuster, our guest on episode 28 and host of the Daily Helping podcast, explains that we should always be giving, as biologically, we get as much reward out of giving as we do receiving. When you take the profit out of it, and, and not that profit is bad, so I'm not saying that at all, but when when you strip away material things, when you strip away revenue streams, and when you get at what you're passionate about and and find something that helps others, it really opens a degree of fulfillment that most people haven't experienced, and I certainly hadn't until that time. When your mission, your purpose, your business is aligned with core values that you believe in and you promote, there's none of that let me put on my you know, sales face and be able to convince you of why you need my product or services. When it's mission-driven, the passion of what you're doing is going to shine through. The purpose of your organization shines through, and it resonates with a degree of genuineness that you wouldn't have otherwise. So that's one thing. Uh, the other thing that's interesting, and uh, another name that I'll drop who is phenomenal in this is Paul J. Zak. And Paul Jazak is the guy when it comes to studying neuroscience and business. And he talks a lot about oxytocin, 
which many people might have heard about, and it's a hormone that promotes feelings of trust. And so this, you know, to, to break out a little bit of neuroscience, it's produced in the hypothalamus, it's re- released into our bloodstream, and there have been many, many studies on oxytocin and what the presence of oxytocin means to our bodies. And certainly it it does promote feelings of trust. But what's interesting is it lessens levels of stress and anxiety. It elevates one's move. And what's interesting is that people who have higher levels of oxytocin have far fewer sick days at work. And, you know, from the standpoint of teams, there is a greater collaborative experience where there's higher degrees of oxytocin. So when you have people that have come together that get behind the values and the mission of a particular company's objective, they create better teams. They work more synergistically. They're more excited about the work that they're doing. They have fewer sick days and on and on and on, Connie. There's there's literally countless examples of how when a, a workplace that is mission-driven is of greater benefit to the company in terms of the bottom line and certainly in terms of employee satisfaction. Simply put, performing a good deed makes us feel good and more connected with the person we're helping. We help ourselves by helping others and create a mutual benefit. So when we set that against a workforce that is hyper-focused on pursuing their purpose, a world where mission-driven businesses are trending upward, Altruism can be seen as a key ingredient to reaching that goal for everyone. It's part of the ideal value exchange. If there's a culture in which everyone is providing value to others, is trying to help others, is actively trying to be an upstander, instead of trying to figure out what they can get for themselves, it again creates a culture of winning for we instead of winning for me. As a workforce, it's important to look at ourselves and question if what we're doing is truly contributing to those around us. Start with a simple resolution to do one good deed each day, and you may find your mood and productivity improve, your ability to learn expedite, and your career and business propelling forward. Thanks for listening to the Strategic Momentum Podcast. And thanks again to all my guests, John Knutson, Beth Friedman, John Keeling, Dan Yu, Dr. Phil Zimbardo, and Dr. Richard Schuster. You can find links to connect with all these guests in the show notes for this episode, as well as links to their previous episodes. And you can find the article that this episode was based on, on Thrive Global. If you've liked what you heard, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a review. It's a small thing, but it can make a big difference. To hear previous episodes or get show notes from this episode, you can visit us at flywheelassociates.com slash podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. I'm Connie Steele, and you've been listening to the Strategic Momentum Podcast.